You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. Welcome to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast with myself, Ryan Walker. In this episode, we're going to be looking at mountain rescue with Ben Cooper and Jamie Patterson. So what I wanted to do is look at the fundamentals of mountain rescue with uh, paramedic Jamie Patterson and emergency nurse practitioner Ben Cooper and just their perspectives, just looking at both the demographics and the diversity of both rescues and teams uh, that constitute the mountain rescue team. What I also want to do is examine some of the specialist domains that constitute being a member of such teams, such as navigation, search strategies, team dynamics, immediate medical care, casualty evacuation, and much more. Finally, I wanted to also examine some of the seminal cases from Ben and Jamie's experience where their training and their perspectives have come into use. Before we um, crack on with the episode, it's just worth saying that both Ben and Jamie are colleagues through World Extreme Medicine. And World Extreme Medicine are actually running a mountain rescue course in October, October 13th to 16th actually, whereby a lot of the principles in the discussion will feature in the course. So please do check that out. We'll put details in the show notes. So without further ado, I will bring you this wide-ranging conversation with Ben and Jamie. Please do leave feedback for us. Please do rate and review the podcast. And also, it'd be great to hear your perspectives on potential content that you'd like to hear in the future. Thanks, guys. Well, let's go back in time. Um, a bit of history of the UK um, Mountain Rescue, or MR. So there was an accident in the Peak District in 1928, sparked the sort of eventual formation of mountain rescue team committee. And prior to this rescue, prior to this, there was a rescue in the lakes and in, on Scarfell, known as the Scarfell disaster in 1903, in which four climbers died. And that really shocked the climbing community um, at the time uh, in, in the Lake District. And uh, they sort of, that was a, a, a key point again to, UK mountain rescue teams evolving and there was an increase in people having walking holidays and climbing holidays um, and again this created an increase in climbing accidents and walking accidents and there was a lack of resources available. Um, the Rucksack Club and the Fell and Rock Climbing Club um, combined to, uh, to form a, a what's called the Stretcher Committee if my memory serves me right, and they looked into a list of equipment needed for key areas for it to be placed um, within, the, 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 within the mountains. And then in the early 50s saw the formation of the, the first sort of civilian rescue teams um, in the key villages like Coniston in Keswick and similar in North Wales and Scotland. So mountain rescue teams come in different sizes and, and different forms, depending on where you are in the world, um, from alpine teams, uh, where it's good weather, you've got a helicopter, you might have two or three medics on board, and then into, more traditionally in the UK, rescue teams consist of around about 30 to 50 people, and they've been paged or text these days um, to, to about 20 people turning out for a, a, a rescue and so rescue teams provide expert um, local knowledge, which reduces times. They provide expertise in casualty care in the austere environment, muscle power, um, ambulance crews work in pairs, and a stretcher or a chair often was used 
and on a hardened surface, which is great, but you can't really use a, a wheel stretcher, an ambulance-style stretcher or, or chair within the, uh, the mountainous uh, or, or even just 100 metres away from a, um, a, a road. And that's where sort of the mountain rescue teams will provide the sort of muscle power um, to help. Uh, we train in all sorts of weather, um, snow, wind, rain, um, and see with it, uh, steep ground, climbing accidents, adventure sports, we are becoming more and more popular. Mountain biking, horse riding, paragliding. And also we're involved in a lot of civil contingencies from flooding, uh, heavy snow, strong winds, um, which is what Jamie's team has been dealing with recent well, the last of the year um, up, in, up in the northeast. Um, heavy snowfall, a lot of time, even within the civil contingency within the, within the Peak District, four by fours, the rescue team will often drive the, uh, the country roads looking for um, distressed or stressed drivers um, or even be brought into the into Sheffield itself because uh, the ambulance service are struggling on, on, the, on the steep ground on the steep roads um, yeah so there's a they're an important asset to the community um, and society um, and without them people will um, will suffer this in the UK I think it's 49 voluntary teams i say they're voluntary teams they're not paid with an average cost of around about 700 pound per rescue um and we yeah, yeah very little funding other than teams having to tin rattle for themselves so jamie just to sort of add to, to that so that's a fantastic synopsis actually ben and um around the dynamics around some of the numbers uh, ben, uh, jamie could i get you to speak to the anatomy so of an M of the mountain rescue teams. Uh, so how big? Um, ben did notion towards sort of a sizable amount of maybe 20 to 30. But um, could you just maybe look at, just describe the metrics that, 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 that define the teams from skill base to experience to uh, background? Speaking to Ben's kind of uh, very detailed overview there, our team kind of started back in uh, 1962 and up in the Thumbland National Park there. And originally, um, all of the members were volunteer wardens of the National Park. So um, because the, the wardens kind of set up the team originally, one of the caveats to becoming a member of the team was to be a warden first, and then this was part of your role as that. Um, nowadays, things have mo uh, moved on quite a lot. And uh, I, think the, I think the job sounds to me like it's changed quite a lot. So where attending more rescues rather than just searches and stuff. Um, certainly in our area, in the Lake District, you've got a lot of, uh, you've got a lot of mountain rescue teams and they cover quite small areas, um, albeit very, you know, very steep ground in some places as well. But in uh, the Northeast and certainly Northumberland, we've got two teams and that's just cover, you know, 3,000 square kilometres. So the logistics and the, and the job is very different. We, we used to do a lot more searches, um, but as the, NHS and ambulance service and all of the emergency services under more pressure. We've been called on a lot more to help in urban areas for searching. Um, just last night, we were called to a, a housing estate where there's a, a wood with a ravine off the back of it to um, augment the, the teams to be able to extricate someone from that as well. So 
the rules certainly are very um, varied and it, it continues to be varied as well. And especially as the statutory emergency services are realizing that we have this resource here and it's free. Um, there's no there's no charge. There's no there's no cost to get Mount Rescue out for these services. So um, the way we're kind of structured at the minute, and again, this will be different across all of the teams um, because they'll have their own challenges and and uh, skills mixed. Um, so our team's certainly structured in that we have the, the overhead leadership. So you've got the team leader augmented with the trustees and the committee. So there's the administrative side of the team and the operational side of the team, as you would have in any emergency service. But um, so the committee kind of oversee things, oversee decisions, um, oversee the, the finances of the team and what we're doing and where we're going. So there's always a structure and a plan uh, in place to, to kind of keep us on track to what, what, what we're doing and what we are spending people's hard, you know, hard won donations on as well. We're not just deciding that morning to um, form a water rescue team and, you know, we're going to start doing this now. We, we have some uh, kind of governance and control of actually what are we doing and how can we do this better? Um, so below the leadership operationally sits the, the deputy team leaders. Um, we currently have two in our team of which I'm one. Um, and we kind of sit, sit shoulder to shoulder with the, the leader, the team leader and kind of um, take stuff off the plate. Uh, we're responsible for different sections. So, um, as a para paramedic and also the medical officer. Um, and that's one of the specializations that you can obviously have in the team um, becoming a medic headed up by the medical officer who then reports to the, what would be a team lead, a, de a deputy team leader above that. And then the team leader um, and making recommendations as well, because it's, there's no point in deciding to do something as medics and then taking it to the leadership who aren't medics and saying, look, uh, this is what we're going to do and them say no we have to kind of work together and explain like this is why we're doing these things and explain the evidence base and rationale so it's quite um quite a useful process really um we have uh operational officers heading up all of our specializations so to speak to a couple of there's the water officer who looks after the uh, governance and the and the training etc of the water team the water rescue team who respond to as ben says um the flooding incidents and swift water rescue incidents that we attend or indeed work work near um and we have a technical rescue officer who's responsible for the ropes and hardware and things like that and um, because it's not just doing the job either all of this kit needs to be checked um you know medical medical kits need to be audited audited everything needs to be serviceable and in date um the um ppe and the technical rescue kit needs to be logged every use is logged it's checked before before and after every use uh, and it all needs to be kind of dated and timestamped so we know when it's running out and we need to replace it. And that's then that's kind of all augmented by the uh, operations group. So we sit on a on a little group where we discuss and reflect on incidents and what we could do better and what we haven't uh, or where there's opportunities to improve um, and how we're going to kind of implement that and, and proceed with that. And then you've got the, the team at large as well. For me at the minute, um, the... We have two teams in the Thumberland. So we've got National Park team, we've got North of Time team. And um, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, why don't you just amalgamate the two teams? And it seems to me that over the years, in my experience, that a mountain rescue team seems to have a bit of a critical mass at about 35, 40 people. You might expand or, or kind of reduce around that, but it kind of stays around that number. And I'm not sure why that is. It just seems to be the way it is. Um so it's better to have two teams of 40 people in, in certainly in my opinion, 
rather than just one um, because you get more perspectives, you get more experience and you've got more to bring to the party at, at that point. Um, so yeah. Listen, that's fantastic. And a real sort of cross-section of, of what the teams look like, which is, which is great. So Ben, could I just ask you uh, to speak to the domains of practice that you look for in an individual and indeed as a team? So, I mean, some of the meta domains would be maybe, yeah, just if you could maybe unpack the, the skills of map reading, navigation, and indeed physical fitness, uh, orientation skills. But but again, I guess, Jamie, just also notion towards, you know, some of the more technical skills of rope skills, swift water uh, skills and others. But maybe could you first speak to the sort of the meta domains that if an individual is wanting to volunteer, they might want to pay attention to, to try and get into the teams? Um, the majority of, of UK teams um, will apply today via via the team website. Um, I know with the, with an EDL team, there's an there's an application form on there, which gives you a structure of what we are expecting of you. Um, and this will often ask an individual to up to download their sort of outdoor CV, really. Um, and this shows that the person has an outdoor background. Um, and they've got the simple outdoor skills and, 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 and sort, of, sort of the basic equipment. Um, we want someone who's a keen outdoors person, walker, climber, mountaineer, um, feeling of being at, at home in the outdoors. Um, so we don't want to be training people the basic skills up. We want to home in on that they've, they've already got those basic skills. They've got a basic rope basic knowledge of rope work, navigation, first aid. Ideally have a first aid certificate in which the rescue team will uh, sort of beef up to the mountain rescue cas care. Be fit and healthy. Um, live close to the uh, the operational area is key. We get lots of people who are really interested, but there's a lot of our jobs, they, they, they want sort of 20, 30 minute response time. And if you live too far away by the time you get the job it's going to be over and done with and you're going to spend a lot of a lot of petrol um and, and that's sort of key to to our area which our area is very different to sort of jamie's area where there's a, not many roads um and the, you know, it, it's a the the northumberland national park is uh, a massive sort of uh, area to look after compared to um the, the busyness of where Edale team look, looks after looks after, um, but we have sort of similar jobs and and also very different jobs um, at, the, at the same at the same time. Um, it's a, it's a, the big thing is a, it's a it's a time commitment, and it takes an average about eighteen months, two years to to train that person up to full team. Um, standard level with an assessment weekend um, and then within that to commit time commitment you've got to think about your life your family work commitments um, can you attend call outs um, can you drop things at a, can you drop life at a, at a sort of a drop of a hat um, yeah we want to, we want team players as well we don't want individuals um, I've seen Lots of people who are superb individuals, but they're not brilliant team players. 
um, and we want we, the team player is is super important. Um, and with that sort of team player comes trust and understanding and a bond. Um, and over the years, that that becomes from being a team player becomes a, it's like a brotherhood, a sisterhood. And um, the, the longer you're in the, the rescue team, the rescue team becomes family. Um, yeah, it's 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 an interesting sort of the people's want to join the rescue team, um, and a lot I know of several people, including myself, who want to put back to what they've they were involved in a rescue themselves, um, and they want to sort of return the, return the favour. So, Jamie, could I get you to speak to the training and education that um, that it might that might look uh, like for someone who might be thinking of applying um, sort of applying to join uh, Mountain Rescue Team? I'm, I'm forever seeing your sort of your updates on social media with different uh, different training and education. Um, I, I also be really interested in your revelation actually as to how different it is from standard pre-hospital care and how much of a departure it might be from from, from the day-to-day practice. Um, yeah, it's interesting. So somebody joined the team, and I'll echo Ben with this, is that if we we certainly in the last couple of years, especially after COVID, went through a bit of a recruitment drive and sent out the application form, um, great. If you put loads of information on the application form, you're invited to go into a Hill Skills Day. So that's the first step. If you didn't put loads of stuff on the application form, but we thought there's enough there, but we just want to interrogate that a little bit more. You're invited to do a little interview over Zoom. And um, there was a few kind of standard questions, but I kind of asked a, f- a few kind of questions that I would I felt would kind of give a, a bit of an insight into what kind of person you are. Um, you know, so tell me about a time you've given up something for someone else or things along those lines. And if, you know, they come up with a specific example, great or whatever, I wasn't really interested in that. I wanted to have a little bit of insight into how you kind of view the world. I wasn't really interested in what your answer was. How do you see the world? What is it just that you've given up your, your seat on the bus one day and you think that's the most altruistic thing that anyone could possibly do? Or is it, you know, something a little bit more sustained? Or I've volunteered for, um, you know, to work in a charity shop for six months or I've, I've done this or I've done that. What's your what's your outlook on life? Um, and it's quite difficult to get that over the interview process. So um, you are invited to a Hill Skills um, almost an interview um, and we meet you in the morning. It's all quite relaxed. I treat it as a bit of an exchange of ideas. I always like to learn something off everyone who comes as well um, because, um, as Ben said again, we like you to have the, the basics there. I'm not super worried if you um, aren't exactly perfect on your navigation, but what I want to see is that when it goes wrong, you don't just go head down and in defeatist there's a bit of cheerfulness there and a bit of a sense of humor is always good too because things do go wrong we're not perfect we are human we are fallible just because we wear red jackets and walk around with mountain rescue written on our backs doesn't mean we don't get lost and make mistakes um god <laughs> i could probably talk to you about an hour just on that um so the first thing i do is is everyone's always turned up with a very neatly packed bag it's been ready the night before the first thing i make you do is empty your bag out in front of you tell me about the favourite bit of kit you've brought and make you repack it. Because then it's not any order you want to do because I feel that that replicates, you know, 
you're not going to have a bag packed. You might have a bag packed all the time and have everything doubled up, but I certainly don't. I've got my outdoor kit that I use on a daily basis. And when a job comes in, I'll have to grab my harness out of my climbing bag or, or grab this from somewhere or grab that or, or whatever. Um, and often it is a bit of a hodgepodge. Um, and it's about being able to handle that and being able to hand, handle situations where things aren't perfect. And then we'll take you up on the hill, whatever the weather is, as long as it's reasonably safe. Put you through some navigation stuff, and on the way we come across some uh, incidents. So you have, might have to deal with somebody who's um, not very well or collapsed. And there is a, a, a hill which I'm sure Ben will be well aware of. It's called Hedge Up in Northumberland, and the um, eastern flank of that is absolutely—it's like a ski slope. It's it's very very steep, um, and we kind of get halfway up that and say, okay, there's somebody on top of you who needs your help now. Get up there. Um, and again, it's not about it's not some sort of special forces election. I don't I don't need to you need to get there in under 10 minutes or anything like that. What I want to see is you get there, you get there safely, and then you sit at the top and you're still laughing and smiling because that person, when we get called out at two o'clock in the morning and the, the wind's howling and it's driving with snow, when we open the group shelter to to um start formulating a plan to get the patient out of there, that person will be able to deal with that. No, if you can't um, handle, you know, being out of your comfort zone and out, and out of your depth a little bit um, and still be able to operate in that, like, you're not going to be much use when it's really, really imperative that we, we are able to get this done. And it, it is nice that you can micro-navigate and you know you are. We don't have to spend time teaching you that. But I think certainly the, the type of person you are and the type of um, attitude that you have towards what you are doing you're not just there because you want to say, oh, yes, I'm in Mount Rescue. Uh, I'm, I'm this, I'm that. That's not what it's about. Um, and going back to how different it is to working as a paramedic on the road, I'm, I kind of did things a little bit backwards. So I joined Mountain Rescue first and then realised that I wanted to do pre-hospital care and paramedicine. Um, so I kind of started doing more austere stuff. So it was really nice, actually, when I came on the road up. Oh, I've got an ambulance full of stuff here. This is great. Like, it was always easier. Um, I think the biggest lesson, I think, and the biggest um, uh, kind of point I can make, the difference is, is that you might be on scene for a little while with absolutely no kit um, or very little kit, only what you've got in your rucksack and what in my, our team you'd have in a first response kit. And again, that's driven by finances. It's driven by me being able to um, kind of diplomatically say to the committee, look, the medics need to have x y and z and then you know the committee saying well the medics have never had x y and z and we seem to have managed all right why has it changed now um but it's all about that's what my role is service improvement and things like that so the biggest thing i could say is that um you have to be able to stick to your basics you have to be able to right i'm i'm happy that patient this patient does not have a catastrophic hemorrhage i'm happy that this patient's airway is patent and i can manage that airway with a you know a head tilt chin lift or a jaw thrust, and you know, you can manage an airway really quite well with that. Um, you know, their chest is rising equally. I can feel that. I'm not, I haven't got a SATS probe. They don't really work in our environment anyway. Is the patient cyanotic? Is the patient have some labored breathing? Um, what cardinal signs and symptoms are there? And being able to kind of interpret that and, you know, look after a patient on the hill for a little bit of time uh, where you're not going to have all the kit you might have day to day you're not going to have your Zoll monitor um so yeah stick to sticking to the basics and being able to do the basics really well is, a, is definitely a fundamental part of 
pre-hospital care and the mountain rescue. So, uh, Ben, Jamie mentioned earlier around governance and sort of some of the seminal cases that just pulling the learning out of out of um, cases, retrospective cases, and just looking at what went well and what could have been done differently. Could you maybe speak to governance within the teams? Um, so it's almost like case review and how the teams approach that um, and maybe the anatomy of that and, and learn for sort of uh, prospectively for future events. Um, so clinical governance is a uh, systematic approach to maintaining and improving quality of patient care um, within the NHS and similar within mountain rescue teams, basically. Um, teams have a clinical, off- well, I know EDL team does have a, uh, a clinical governance officer. And as Jamie's mentioned, within the teams, there is a medical officer, a training officer, a clothing crag and water, a vehicle officer, et cetera, et cetera. Um, within the medical officer's role, um, with, with the, it involves this sort of clinical governance, which will include the sort of seven um, pillars of education, training, risk management, uh, clinical audit, uh, clinical effectiveness to research and development, um, something else, something else, and risk management. Um, so the team members are trained to a very high standard of uh, casualty care, and that involves ad- administration of drugs, including um, simple things like oxygen, entonox, um, control drugs like morphine, um, fentanyl lozenges, um, and simple paracetamol, aspirin, adrenaline. Um, so all these obviously have have, have risk, um, and as as the the clinical governance, we need to sort of keep on top of, of of that risk, and so education training is needed, and clinical effectiveness among certain drugs for treatment is 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 needed. Um, and the team doesn't want to carry a small pharmacy with it, and so a clinical audit of of the medicines that we do carry how often they're used and certain drugs needed at certain times um, is key. And plus with the control drugs, um, which the t- every team has to fill in uh, the, a, the ver- various legal paperwork, which is given to us by the, by the, the government. Um, I can't think of the actual, who are the, the the actual people are. Um, however, that drug book is as serious as the CD book kept in an ambulance and kept in um, in a hospital, um, and it does it won't take much for any sort of foul play for simple um, for for man rescue teams basically to have the 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 drugs license taken taken off them. Um, so the research and development is great within mountain rescue team, for example, I don't know, for the NHS, for example, 90% of what it does is for real, with 10% practice. Uh, military does 90% practice, 10% for real. And within the mountain rescue team, we sort of do 50-50, basically. We, um, we, we train and we do real jobs as we go along. And if a bit of equipment works well, then we, we use it. If it doesn't, then we, we, we get rid of it. So, yeah, I remember when KTDs, for example, came out, um, we were carrying these 
big um, cumbersome traction devices for fractured femurs. And um, and each team, there was we had about three different ones in our team. Buxton had a different one. Um, Kinder had a different um, traction device. And then we sort of, the, the KTD came out and it was like the size of a, a pencil case. And we, we got one, we tried it, thought, yeah, this is brilliant. This really, this really works. It's, it's light space saving. So we got, we got three and, and we were using them at least 10 years before the ambulance service, the fire service, the police were using them. But when the fire service, the, the NHS, the, the ambulance service get involved, they've got to buy, they buy several thousand of these of, of bits of equipment and they've got to wait for everything to, I don't know, to, for everything to, to stop working or everyone to be trained and everyone to be um, shown how to use them before they go on the road. Whereas we'll buy one bit of kit have a training out on a Tuesday night, all 50 team members turn up, we demonstrate how it's used, everyone has a go, and within three or four months, that bit of kit's on the road. Um, it's not 18 months later or, um, or a year, 18 months later, like some organisations, because there's so much involvement needed in, 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 in training. Um, the rescue team have guidelines, policies and procedures. Um, but I say a majority, they'd say the training is simply done via Zoom or at the headquarters. And we demonstrate how that bit of kit's used and we, we move forward. So it's quite a quick um, process um, we, we use. But I say the clinical governance is, is super important to make sure that what we're doing is the, the best for the, that casualty um, at, at that time. Jamie, could I get you to speak to the management of risk while responding to an incident? Um, I'm sure, not like you said before, not all incidents have gone to plan. Some incidents have dynamically changed. Classically, the enemy never do what you want them to do. Um, so things do do change um, quite dynamically. Could you just speak to those, to those, some of those factors you're processing and acutely aware of? Yeah, uh, absolutely. No plan survives first contact. Um, I think the risk with mountain rescuers as volunteers, it starts the second you walk out the door. Um, you are driving to an incident and um, I think it'd be remiss to say you're not. You're, you're only human. You will be affected by wanting to get there, that noble cause kind of commitment idea. Um, you might be going to get a vehicle where you will pick up a vehicle. You will very, very quickly do a, a, you know, a daily inspection. Um it's not like, you know, you come in half an hour early before your shift so you can get the vehicle sorted out. Um, it's it's on the hoof. Um, you're then driving at the incident on blue lights. Now, Mountain Rescue have uh, dispensation to use blue lights in the UK. However, they do not have the same exemptions as the police, the fire and the ambulance service do. Um, so you, you can use them to make progress, um, which is what they're for anyway. Um, it's certainly how I uh, utilise them in all of my work. Um but again, I'm uh, fortunate to be in the position where I get to do this, drive on blue lights every day, most days, um, from a work in the ambulance service. And um, some of the volunteers might not have done that for a few weeks before they've done that. So bringing that whole skill set to bear, 
on the day when you haven't done it for a little while and you are going to be rusty, it is a difficult thing. So the risk starts before you even get on the hill. You can forget about warm jackets and waterproofs and boots. Like driving there is a, is a risk in itself. Um, touch wood, nothing's ever really uh, happened to us and our team over the years, but things have happened in, in the UK over the years. And then once you get on the scene, the, it's about being able to manage um, the, the, the initial response. So why, why are we there? What are we needing to do? Get the most information we can, um, which is as with any in, with any job or any emergency response, information is critical, and it's not always readily available. Certainly, the right information might not come to light until hours, hours, days, or weeks later. Um, and you can think, oh, if only we'd known that at the time. Um, and then you start to deploy on the hill. So, if for instance, there's a search, I'm, I'm kind of my memory goes back to a job uh, one, I think it was a January evening, it was very clear this gentleman had been, was overdue from from walking in the Cheviots. Uh, we had a, a young dog with him and we knew his kind of direction of travel. We knew his last known point. He texted a picture of him, of his position on Google Maps to his uh, other half and had then not turned up. So, you know, it's it's dark, it's a clear night, so it's, it's probably just below zero um uh, and you have to kind of very quickly form a search plan and um communicate that plan now there's risks obviously with the communication with um and before you even put people out on the hill like what is the job we're going to do and then um you're putting people out on the hill in and then i always we always laugh in mountain rescue because it's never a nice sunny afternoon where these things happen um people people get stuck and stranded because of the weather conditions change rapidly or um, they've got to the end of their day and something's happened because they're tired, they're not focused, they're on the way down, that's when most things happen. So it's often dark, it's often cold, it's often um, raining, wet and and, uh, and there's snow. Um, so you've got a, you've, you've kind of got a, to manage that extra level of risk um, and it kind of comes back to the heuristics and we talk about that a lot in Avalanche Rescue but there's certainly the heuristics of being a rescuer where you've got a noble cause. We're committed to doing this. You know, I've, I've, I want to do this job. I um, have that expert halo of being in this red jacket with mountain rescue written in my arm. Um, and you might take extra risks because of, because of those things. Um, so again, it comes back to, you know, being, have, having that experience around and say, actually guys, let's just, let's just stop and slow down here. What are we actually doing? What are we actually trying to achieve? Um, because it's all and good trying to locate someone, but if we locate people and lose two people along the way or people get injured, like it comes back to your primary survey in that danger. A lot of mountain rescue is spent in that in that kind of first initial phase of your primary survey where you're managing risk and managing danger um, and not necessarily with a patient at that point either. So, um, yeah, I think it's about kind of taking a step back and looking after yourself first, and that's emphasised heavily and certainly my practice is that if something's something's going down or something's well, certainly if i arrive at a, a fine site where we found someone or we know we've got a patient and they're in a, a bothy um we'll probably talk a lot more about boffies in a minute um the first thing i do if i arrive and that's all being squared away is i'll put my bag down i'll have a listen to what's going on inside the boffy and i will have myself uh, a little bit of water or a brew 
little bite to eat and I'll put a warm jacket on and I'll manage myself first. And I'll just catch my breath again and just bring myself back down to a level where I know I can step into that, into that situation and um, be able to kind of perform my best rather than kind of lifting the tent up, being still out of breath with my bag on, probably soaking wet and, and probably not augmenting the team at all. Um, and again, that's another thing and probably one of the differences of, um, again, ambulance work compared to mountain rescue work is that we have to win the environment first. Ben kind of, kind of, uh, kind of spoke to the military kind of perspective on things a moment ago. And we have to protect that patient from the elements because just because we've arrived doesn't mean you're going to get rescued straight away. There's probably potentially a number of hours where you're still going to be exposed to the elements and we have to manage that as well. So um, before we start doing any medicine or anything at all, it's winning that environment. So getting your patient off the ground, um, putting a bothy shelter up. So Ben came up with the uh, bothies before bandages slogan and hashtag, which is really, really, um, really simplifies a very, very important concept where you have to win that environment first because there's no point in opening your IV cannulation pack and it blowing all over the hillside and then it becoming useless. So controlling that environment, making that environment as as, uh, as sterile, sterile as possible and, and out of the elements which, you know, and the situation which the, the patient has, you know, become uh, a casualty because of potentially. So Ben, looking at ceilings of care, what, what's in your mind are some of the appropriate ceilings of care on scene in a remote environment? Um, so, so ceilings of care, I would say, from, from, it depends on who turns out from the rescue team um, at, the, at the time. So we've got sort of first aiders to CAS carers through to healthcare professionals from, um, from, from nurses for, to, to doctors within the rescue team. Um, but we, the, all, all the basics are done well. And then that, that, that's key. The basics are done well. Um, different teams will have different resources. Um, and again, from EDL team, on a good day, depending on who's around, the team has a lot of medics in it. Um, at one point, we had about 25 healthcare professionals in it from uh, consultants, anaesthetists, to ED consultants, to paramedics, ambulance technicians, ED charge nurses, emergency nurse practitioners, as an advanced uh, care practitioner, um we yeah some of our team docs actually are on board the helimed um and some of them are basic responders as well so the ceiling of care changes depending on the resources to who turns up from really good basic skills done well through to the, the full rsi uh with finger thoracotomy depends on the uh, the incident um and the situation uh, at, the, at the time, um, I remember a climber um, once, yeah, uh, one of a, many years ago, and the, the rescue team sort of turned up, and we realised that uh, we, we, we sort of did the job, uh, but we worked out that within the rescue team itself, we could have put the person, well, we from the scene of the accident into an ambulance using team paramedics and an ambulance technician through to the a &E department using the a &E staff that were in the rescue team through to theatre because we had an anaesthetist, we had an, a, um, 
uh, orthopedic surgeon in the team at the time. We had a radiographer in the team at the time, an ODP in the team at the time, and put that person into the ward without using the NHS. We could use the NHS equipment. We could have done it safely from start to finish and put that person into a, a made bed but made by a team nurse and that's how we were and, and at the time so the skill set is like I say depends on who turns up but the key is that the basics get done well the advanced people come and they will not often get they'll sometimes they will stand back and observe given that CAS carer who could be a uh, a tax officer could work in the local climbing shop. Uh, could be a teacher. They, they've got that reassurance that someone's watching them do the basics well, knowing that if they're unsure, that that healthcare professional will step in and just guide them along, or step in if things are going wrong. Um, but I say the the, the beauty of the rescue team is sometimes you don't know who's going to turn up, um, but we're all even the, the, the a, a doctor and the paramedics and the nurses join the rescue team. They've still got to do their three year CAS care exam and the doctor does it the first year of joining the team. They don't have to do it after that, but it means that we're all trained to a, to a, a basic level and 99% of the time, the basics done well will always work. And that doesn't matter if it's a post officer, postman sticking a box splint on or an ED consultant putting a box splint on. As long as the basics are done well, we've all been trained the same way, job gets done. Absolutely. And I think that's essential actually around, around the basics done well. I think that, that echoes across all different high-performing teams uh, in clinical practice from critical care teams to mountain rescue teams to frontline ambulance teams to nursing staff and indeed um, in hospital teams. Jamie, you, you spoke of the importance of team dynamics and sort of, and, and some of the fundamentals of team dynamics. Um, I'm going to sort of combine two questions in one here around when I've seen um, and been on expedition, some of the team dynamics are sort of stressed the most on protracted Kazivaks. Um, when people are tired, you often need more people than you think you will for a Kazivak because, because it's exhausting um, that and, and team dynamics start to fray and things can not always do, but can fall apart on on a Kazivak. Could you maybe speak to your sort of salient lessons learned from in team dynamics when you're on a rescue and some of sort of navigating some difficult Kazivaks and keeping sort of that team dynamic together? Yeah, so I think you're absolutely right. When when we're in this situation, especially, you know, it's it, it'll be the middle of the night, people will be stressed, uh, tired probably hungry. It might be their wedding anniversary tomorrow and they haven't bought a present and now they're out doing this. Um, because we've all got, you know, we've all got lives and stuff at the end of the day as well. And we've all, you know, you might have been at work all day and now you're doing this. Now this is what you signed up for. However, I don't really like that phrase. I think that this isn't a normal job. And the other side of that is that, as Ben just said, it doesn't matter who's doing the, the casualty care or the medicine. It is, um, if you're a paramedic, there is an expectation that, you know, you've probably dealt with a few things before 
However, you might not have seen that injury before. Um, certainly, those lay people who come and train as casualty carers probably won't have seen the potentially that level of injury before or been in that situation. Um, so it is very stressful. Um, there's a lot that takes up your bandwidth. You know, being bad at the rain and even this the noise of the wind on the boffy shelter is a, is enough to distract you from even the most basic tasks. Um, I think the the best way to kind of combat that though is um, first of all with training. Now, when I train, I always say that we had a couple of training sessions this week, and I started the the session with, "Look, guys, if you're not feeling some sort of stress." And, and probably a little bit annoyed with me in the next two hours that we're not doing something right here because we need to train. We need to train with that level of stress in your back of your mind, whether we're shouting and screaming at you, whether we're, whether we're out in the wind and the, in the, in the cold and the dark, whether we're somebody's squirting fake blood at you, you need, we need to have that level of stress so that when we're, when we're um, actually doing the job, hopefully your brain kind of recognizes that and we've got that pattern recognition going on and we've got that stress inoculation. So that high fidelity training is really, really important. Um, carrying a stretcher for hours with somebody on it who needs to, um, you know, go to the toilet, who needs to have ob- observations checked because it's all well and good saying, right, carry a stretcher from the top of that hill at the bottom, right? That took an hour. Well done, lads. Um, lads and lasses, well, you know, that was no bother. But actually, it's not going to take an hour because we're going to have to stop we need to give a bolus of fluid. We have to stop because it needs a toilet. We're gonna to have to stop because we need to recheck some mobs. It's gonna take two, three, four hours, um, and making sure everyone kind of understands that and that mental model is is shared and everyone under, understands that we have to do these things. We can't just chuck them on a on a on a bell stretcher and and that be the end of it. Um, and I think the the kind of the way as a, again as a probably one of the more senior members of my team now, which is quite scary to think about. Um, I try to model that as well. You know, I'll turn up to a to a rescue and say, oh, hey, tell you what's cold tonight, isn't it? Or, you know, oh, I've, had a, I've had a rubbish day today. It's been awful. It's, I've had such a long day and I'm pretty knackered, actually. Um, you know, I, I think I might need a bit of your help with this. Um, so trying to model that and being... <laughs> Try to model a little bit of vulnerability as well. That we're not perfect and we are human. Um, and there's a few people said to me over the years, oh, I was really glad when you arrived. Like, Why? You you had this in hand. It's all good. I just stood there with my hands in my pockets. But sometimes just having that team and the people you trust around you is really, really valuable. Um, now, I would certainly far rather have somebody who's uh, like a medium performer but high trust value in my team than a high performer who hasn't got very quite a low trust value. That's much, much, much more um, useful to me in the, in the team than someone who can, who can climb, you know, 7A and with no bother. Well, that's great, but you're not be able to talk to casually on the way down because you've got no crack. <laughs> um, <laughs> and just, yeah, having a bit of sense of humour and a bit of cheerfulness. I think it's the, one of the commando values, isn't it? With cheerfulness in the face of adversity. You're going into a situation where somebody's already injured, so that's one. The, the conditions are left far from ideal, that's two. And you've probably um, had a rubbish day at work and now, you, now you're now out doing this and you're going to be out for the next four hours. You're not going to have a good night's sleep and you've got all your kit to sort out after and you haven't had any dinner. There's loads and loads of factors here which is going to be brought into that team. 
and it, it's about being able to be honest and creating a culture where we can be honest and be vulnerable and say, um, I'm not feeling my best tonight, guys. I might need a little bit of, I might need to offload some stuff on you. Or indeed, uh, when we're debriefing and reflecting, um, oh, that, that could have gone better. I could have done this better. On reflection, I would do this differently. And being able to, to, to share that experience so others can learn from that as well. Um, but it is a really interesting arena for team dynamics and team performance. And I think that, again, the training and, and the culture and, and getting to know each other before and after and even just socially is really, really important. So, guys, as we're coming in to land on the conversation, could I just both get you to speak to a sort of seminal case you've taken learning from and, uh, and maybe sort of share it with the listeners? Ben, if I could ask you to go first. Ooh, um, well, so I'm just looking at the question. Is this one with the sort of collaborating with emergency services? Oh, yeah, that's the yeah, point. yeah. I think I remember a job last year actually. Mm. Um, it was a we had a, a car off the road, um, just it was only about a 15 minute drive from the, from the house, it just the, the it was just going dusk. I'd just done it, like James said, just done a 12 hour shift at work. Come home, everything's fine at home. Yeah, you know, which, which, which is you can't just come home, call out, run out of the house. Yeah, that's you work on your brownie points. Yes, come home, everything's fine at home. Pager goes up, or text comes up over the phone. Um, and I was expecting to go to a climate accident or where the, where the rendezvous was. And when I arrived, there was a fire service there, ambulance service there, police um, traffic car, uh, arm response vehicle. Um, and a, yeah, a car had gone off the road and gone down embankment by a couple of hundred metres um, and with the, with, the, with the person in, in, inside. Um, so the, yeah, so you had police there, fire service there, ambulance service there. There was um, the S92, which is the Coast Guard Search and Rescue on on route. Um, and then within the Mountain Rescue team itself, there was an A&E consultant. There was um, myself as an A&E nurse. There was a consultant anaesthetist and, and a paramedic there, all from the rescue team. And we all knew uh, someone within the emergency service there. Um, and that just broke down barriers straight away. There was no sort of, well, we're here first, we're here first, this is our patient, which sometimes unfortunately happens. It was very much a case of, well, we're all here for this one person in the car. Um, and, and because we knew everyone, we worked alongside each other, either in hospital or out of hospital, then the barriers were broken and the, the casualty just got fantastic care. And we're able to, because of we work in the department where this patient was going to go to, the major trauma centre, we're able to just phone in and give the, give the heads up uh, of what's coming in. And then a couple of days later, the team doctors ended up involved in that patient's care within the hospital. So we're able to get, with the patient's permission, feedback to the rescue team to say what we did right, what we did wrong. Um, and, and then that feedback is, is, is key. Lots of people end up in hospital via the ambulance service or the fire service. And they've got, they don't know what ever happened to them because of the sort of patient confidentiality. 
and we're able to we're able to gain that from from, from the patient. Um, I mean, I've I've over the years I've had more sort of thank you letters and been involved in more thank you letters from people we've rescued than I have in the sort of twenty five years of working in an A and E department. Uh, and those letters are very meaningful. Uh, and those people we rescue will often hand, hand over a hefty donation to the rescue team, um, and it's, which is very different to that working for, to the, for the NHS. It's the, um, there's a lot of sort of job satisfaction uh, that comes with being in, in, in an MRT. But yeah, that was they said, probably the mo most recent job that involves many, many aspects of the wider emergency service. Um, and over the years, we've just broken down so many barriers um, that when we turn up, it's all not high fives, but yeah, it's just a, it's a, it's a great feeling that they're sort of glad that we're here. We're glad that they're here. Um, everyone knows each other. We all we're all capable of looking after each other's backs, um, and got that 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 trust that sort of Jamie was talking about before. None of us are super high performers, but what we have got is a a bond of, of trust um, and, and and family. So, Jamie, could I ask the same of you, just from a seminal case where you really took quite a lot of learning from uh, within the Mind to Rescue? Um, I would echo Ben that yeah, just a couple, uh, was it last night? Last night uh, we turned up to a job, I turned up to a job in a mountain rescue vehicle, um, fire and rescue were on scene, the heart team were on scene, uh, crew and ambulance were on scene, and I got out of the vehicle and immediately knew the fire officer because we trained with them I immediately knew the heart the heart guys um from the road I knew the ambulance crew um I even knew the patient's friend actually because he is a doctor at the hospital so everyone was like oh hey mate how you doing blah blah and it's not you know just the social side it's like oh great I know you I trust you um I've got a reasonable reputation I think so <laughs> um I think that just it does just grease the wheels a little bit because you're not just thinking, right, who are you? What what are you? What what do you do? Um, it, it really does help. And having those uh, relationships, you know, then leads to joint exercises and you can see how each other work and what skills are bringing to the party. So I really, I really uh, agree with Ben's point. Um, personally, the jobs that I've reflected on, there was one job where we had a gentleman who had uh, injured his lower leg packaged them it was quite a straightforward job clinically um he just needed a, a bit of a carryover to the to where we'd be able to get him to a roadhead and then into an ambulance and um, we, we carried him for about an hour or so and i was just as i do always and anyone who has been on a rescue with me will tell you i never shut up when someone's on the stretcher um i always kind of reflect on that that person doesn't need to be forgotten and they're in pain etc and it's my my job to kind of have a crap with them so i just talk nonsense to them and um, I asked this guy about halfway across his house, how's, how's your leg doing? And he was like, I'm sorry? I said, how's your leg doing? You, you, you're on a stretcher because you've, you know, we've potentially got, you've broken your leg. He said, oh, I forgot all about that. Um, so yeah, not not a massive clinical story or, or you know, major injuries or anything, but I really think that the 
that essentially nursing skills and soft skills of being able to talk with somebody, being able to warm them up and uh, control their pain and, 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 you know, you can use pharmacology to do that or you can use other means are really, really valuable. And if you can build a rapport with someone really quickly, you're going to get them on side. It's just like the teamwork stuff. You make that patient part of the team, explain to them what's going on uh, and get them to buy into it and even add, you know, suggestions and, and augment the plan. Um, that's really valuable. And that's another resource you can kind of tap into. Um, and it, again, it kind of, it, it, it makes their experience more comfortable and, and, and much better as well. Um, so far as a more exciting clinical story, I can't really think of one off the top of my head. But yeah, I mean, I'll just go back to the fact that, you know, is the basics done well? Um, we had a gentleman up on Hedge Up, that horrible hill I mentioned before, he'd kind of run up the circuit. This guy was um, very, very short of breath and we, we it was quite difficult to work out why. We very quickly had a lot of people at scene and a lot of resources, including, you know, patient patient monitors and stuff so we had lots of stuff pretty much all the stuff we'd have on an ambulance really um we had you know doctors etc um we weren't really sure what was going on um and being able to just again calm them down and using those soft skills and the basics stuff right let's rule out tension before actually don't need an ultrasound to do that we can do this like that and just keep rechecking and rechecking and then being able to explain to the patient look um this is what's going to happen next we've, we've asked for a helicopter to come it's going to get noisy um, you won't be able to hear anything, but I will be with you until I put you in the back of that helicopter. There's a face going to be next to you until you are leaving this hillside and then we'll pass you on to somebody else. Um, so yeah, just being able to, to kind of communicate and, and um, bring that person on board is, is really valuable, no matter what the circumstances. Listen, that's fantastic. And absolutely to both cases, you know, that sense of collaboration and communication and that, that shared mental model, that shared idea um, and high levels of trust between you. So that's absolutely fantastic. Guys, I'm mindful we've, we've been going for just about an hour now. So um, I'm going to pull it to a close. But uh, just to say uh, thank you for your time over the last hour, both, both of your times, because it's been fantastic just to get your perspectives and insights, but also just really call upon your uh, anecdotal experience. So thank you to both of you. Thank you, and what I'll do just with the show notes is I'll add uh, information about the mountain rescue teams, about some of the prerequisites and indeed some of the concepts which Ben and Jamie have both spoken about in the last hour. Um, so thank you guys and we'll catch you soon. You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network.